0: Welcome to Spiritual Capital. This is Diamond Hargis, co-founder of The Learning Tree, a community-based group looking at people's gifts and talents, figuring out
1: how to use them to build community, economy, and mutual delight. And I'm Craig Matson. I'm glad to be co-hosting the pod today with Diamond. We're going to talk about spiritual capital in terms of spiritual practice. Maybe this episode will itself be a kind of spiritual practice for you, a chance to let your soul slow down and catch up with itself, maybe, and, and come awake to things that, in the work of community building, in your organization, community development, in your neighborhood, to notice the things, the unobvious things, that you usually find yourself driving by just too fast. I wonder if I could start this podcast with a quick story. So... One of my favorite authors is a philosopher of science by the name of Michael Polanyi, and he wrote a book called Personal Knowledge. In this book, he talks about all the stuff that we know without really being able to fully say how we know those things. And he tells this story of being a young medical student and trying to analyze a, an X-ray, looking at that pulmonary imagery And he said that when he first looked at the image, he could not see the lungs, he could only see the ribs, the bones there. But as he listened to fellow experts, doctors, teachers, as he listened to them talk about the imagery, and as he kept kind of shifting his attention from what they were saying to what he was seeing on the image, he gradually, he said, stopped seeing the bones and started to see the lungs. And that, for me, has become kind of a parable of spiritual capital. So we're often good at seeing the bones, the the economic, the, so to speak, hard concerns of community or organizational life. But learning to see the lungs as well, like what makes this organization breathe? What makes this neighborhood respirate? Seeing both the bones and the lungs, we might think of the bones as like economic capital and the lungs as like social capital. Learning to see both those things at the same time is pretty challenging It might actually require a kind of spiritual practice or a set of spiritual practices. So, in this episode, we'd like to talk about some of the practices that we've learned that we found to be helpful in learning to see the 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 bones and the lungs of a community. Does that does that sound like what you were thinking, too, Diamant? That sounds pretty good.
0: Um, I'm curious, um, what are before we go into that? um, I'd love to. What are some uh, memorable learnings that you've gotten? through this spiritual capital process.
1: Yeah, so I'm a communication scholar, and one of the sort of instinctive um, habits of attention for me is to pay attention to the stories that we tell. And something I've noticed in talking with a lot of social entrepreneur types is that the the story that our That late modern society encourages us to tell is is often an inspirational story about a powerful individual who encounters a problem and overcomes that problem through dint of of grit and resilience and and uh creativity i love that story it's a great story but i've come to hear another kind of story which i i call the neighborhood story and that it's it's Not centered on the powerful individual, but is instead a part of the breathing in and breathing out um, of a community. Yeah, I think you're
0: right about having to be able to see both the hard and the soft. I think um, the problems today is we only mostly unbalancedly see the hard, right? Though the soft is there and there are social entrepreneurs that I think mostly grab onto that, but we don't, we don't have a balanced look at our economy.
1: Yeah, I think something I've learned from talking with you, Diamond, is that you can have a lot of economic resources, and if you're not able to connect those resources with people's lived experience... Then, like those resources aren't going to be super helpful, and you can run out of them awfully quickly. So learning to to recognize both the bones and the lungs, both the the vital um, economic structures I've always been impressed by your economic practicality in our conversations. Um, but at the same time, learning to recognize the way that a community respirates, as an important part of its life.
0: Or vice versa too, right? Because uh, physical resources are, are finite, and it's hard to match those two things up, the intangible, um, which is always around the changes. But a specific currency, a tangible currency, could, could change <laughs> or disappear. Um, so you were talking about practices. And what spiritual practices do we do to help us see both?
1: When I was a kid on Wednesday nights in my little church that my parents took me to, there would be this thing called testimony time. People would stand up in the pew, grip the pew in front of them, and tell some story about a a kind of compelling experience that they'd had recently. And I remember as a kid being a little impatient with this, not recognizing the importance of it. But now I look back and I see that, those testimonies were for that community a kind of, well, I've heard you use the phrase story currency and yeah, I guess I'd be curious to hear from you too. Like how did you learn to recognize the importance of that currency? I mean, I know how I did it was those Wednesday night testimony times as a kid, but like, what about you?
0: Well, uh, it it was from relatives. I think that um, there is levels of understanding of story well, one, we're all born with those, with that currency. Mm. That's how we know who we are. And that kind of affected me um, in the way I kind of just live naturally. It's because my grandparents always told stories. There was a set story time all the way up until I left home. But just recently, in the last six or seven years, i come to a yeah. uh, probably a precipice of how I see stories through my neighbor wild style. And I remember uh, I would tell Tim stories that didn't seem like normal, in a sense. I would tell him about, about how many gifts and talents that people would have around here in our neighborhood. And um, I remember him telling me, he's like, yeah, I couldn't see that because mm. it's not a dominant, dominant narrative. And so he started walking with me and hanging out and then he would bring his camera and every once in a while you would see him snap a picture and and then he would tell a story mm-hmm. on our uh, Facebook page and it started to make sense yeah. like people start coming to me it's like oh I know what you guys do and little little practices uh, it looks I think it looks like photography it looks like have asking people to write questions about their gifts their talents and their contributions on a porch mm-hmm. very informal mm-hmm. um It looks like uh, our news engines today, right? Um, Those things are—it's all around us. Uh, Applications when you fill out, or Mm -hmm. like applications for college. Dejanay, my daughter is uh, filling out application, and she has to tell stories.
1: I remember getting to sit down with Pastor Jay, uh, Jonathan Brooks, in the Englewood neighborhood of Chicago. We sat down at a table in. Sanya Cafe. And I remember beginning to get a sense for what a community story might sound like. A story in which it's not just Pastor Jay at the center of it. Um, he's he's pretty adamant that it is the neighborhood that is the the main character here, even for his church. Like he pastors a church, or he at the time he was pastoring a church in that very neighborhood, and You know, he said, it's like, it's not all about what's happening inside our church. There's a kind of um, blurring of the boundaries between what our church is doing and what our community is doing. And he was pretty happy about that.
0: And I know Jonathan, he's great. And I think that's, he embodies that work. And my question for you, what what do you do? What are some of the story, how do you get into storytelling? How do you utilize it? I mean, I guess we're utilizing it now, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, podcasting is. One way for sure. I think as a writer and a researcher, like something I've tried to learn to do is to listen for the story under the story. You know, w- when I would talk with a social entrepreneur type, my sense is that they would often begin with a kind of conventional, I- inspirational story about how they encountered a problem, looked for a solution, overcame the problem, and, you know, moved towards greater flourishing in, in their particular organization or community. I love that story. I mean, it's like the plot line for a million TED Talks. It's great. It's good stuff. But as I listened to like 45 different social entrepreneur types t- telling their stories, I started to notice that there was a story under the story. You know, as a researcher, you're kind of looking for patterns. You're, you're looking for rhythms and you're looking for ways to kind of synthesize and and maybe a way to articulate something that isn't in the foreground of what the research subject might be saying, but which is nonetheless very much present in the, in the background. And so that's sort of how I came to, to kind of conceptualize um, a neighborhood story as a really important genre in organizational storytelling, and I I've come to see it as a as a sort of spiritual practice.
0: You know, one of my favorite other other of my favorite practices is um, celebrations, like the act of gathering folks in a periodic time. It's almost like when you talk about testimony, um, it becomes that time people kind of testifying uh, to one another. So I think that's that's very that's very powerful to me. I mean, I, I'm not the only one to do it, but several of my neighbors are really good at it. Uh, my neighbor January, she says that um, she loves to make memories, and the thing we can't control is how we make memories together. And so that was very powerful.
1: You know, I think I was primed to pay attention to the practice of storytelling because of my academic research, like. In my discipline of communication, uh, people really started to revive the importance of narrative in the late 60s and the 70s. And, you know, when I hit the, the discipline and started grad school, you know, some decades later, narrative was still super important. It was still remarkably at the at the forefront of a lot of what people were thinking about with communication. So it was sort of a disciplinary habit for me to just notice narrative. But, you know, if we, if we keep focusing on this at a theoretical level, then that might not be super helpful. So let's talk about something that seems not at all theoretical, and that is the simple practice of taking a walk. That's something I've heard you talk about quite a bit, and I wonder, Diamon, if you could think out loud a bit about that practice in your life.
0: I mean, things that bring us joy in a way that is not going to work. It is not a meeting. Um, Sometimes it's just across the dinner table and other times it's a concert, (laughs) you know. But the ideal of it is, is sharing, breaking bread, you know, exchanging um, spiritual uh, experience, exchanging um, ideas, um, laughter. I mean, it's like a holistic way of exchange or sharing.
1: Yeah, I remember one of the first times I talked with you. It was in um, at the SoCap conference um, a couple years back, I guess now, and you commented on the importance of sitting down to table with people, which does seem like like a, a frequent, very human place to conduct that sort of practice of celebration. They don't
0: always. It's not always rosy, but I think the importance of people that don't look like you come from the same community or even same idea or uh, thought process. I think that uh, that happens because we don't know each other. There's, there's no, not a willingness to um, take steps together to create a new table that is more neutral in the sense, or, or just respectful. And I, I mean, I've been part of like, putting those walls up myself. One of the um, uh, people that work at the mayor's office, he has become just a a really good ally for community around here. And working with the city isn't an easy task. Lots of barriers up. But I found um, and this person I knew, um, Jeff Bennett, I knew him um, before he was deputy mayor. And You know, he was in community development, and I can say I didn't totally understand it, but it didn't—it didn't seem like it was an abundant process. So we've always been kind of at odds about that. But uh, my neighbor Wildstyle had uh, come to know Jeff and took walks, and you know, it it took a little translation for me and Jeff to get on a page together—not the same page, but on on a page—and. And I have to say that a lot of what I've learned is that you know, whilst I took walks with him, he got to know him as a person, and you know, and that's what we asked I think it's important in our in this idea of um, trying to figure out how we're going to solve some very major problems in this country is got to figure out how to get to know each other differently. I mean, the, the same thing with the White House, right? Um, you know, years ago, pe- and people used to live in Washington, D.C. All the politicians, because they ran into each other, you know, and now they don't. They live in other places. And so when they come to a meeting together, there's a line drawn um, and all possibilities of solving a, a problem um, for the common as went out the window.
1: I'm struck by the way that sitting down a table with people can be a kind of counter-cultural practice or or thinking about celebration as important for organizational and communal life can be a little bit counter-cultural. I mean, today the, the problems of late modern society are so present to us. The problems in our own lives are so present to us that we could just spend all our time thinking about those problems and miss the way that there is an abundance that is present and I, I have a friend um Aaron Keeker, who's commented recently that one of the problems with the gifts that we have in our communities is not that they're too few, but that they're they're so many that we overlook them. So celebration gives us a chance to to come awake to that so muchness. The longer I've been paying attention to this kind of work of problem solving, collective problem solving in um, various kinds of societal conditions the more impressed I am by the indispensability of loving the local, paying attention to what's right next to you. remember Wendell Berry talking about how it all hangs on affection. He had a series of lectures with that title, I think. And having that affection for what is near you is such a deeply and, I don't know, vitally human practice. We've been talking about kind of cheerful, um, celebratory, um, conversational practices, like taking a walk with other people or sharing a meal. Let's go to the other end of the communicational spectrum and talk about a practice that involves silence. Well, it happens
0: in a couple of ways. Um, you know, there's kind of a self-reflection that only requires you to, to kind of think about what you're learning, Uh, what's being affirmed, what, seeing your blind spots. Um, And then there's a collective reflection too. So for me, um, the collective reflection happened in two ways. Um, The walks, I'm always walking with someone and there's a conversation. And then there's group when we have gatherings just to reflect on the work we've been doing, um, trying to figure out how can we see and act and participate in more um, deeper things and that those two things but the 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 self reflection is a thing that i usually do at night um you know, i'll put some music on and i'll just ponder some questions um or things that come up during the day is mostly what i'm thinking about who who i connected with uh what what mistakes have i made and you know, so they have, what about you? How, how does that play
1: out? Yeah, yeah, they're very, very similar. I guess before I talk about my own experience with taking a walk, I'll, I'll say that a number of my research subjects found walking to be an important spiritual practice for them, an important organizational practice, too. So it both had sort of personal benefit, but also this kind of pragmatic import for them. I'm thinking about Shannon Hopkins, walking the streets of London as she's getting ready to launch and develop and deepen her organizational work there. I'm thinking about, oh, here in Chicago, my friend, Demetrio um, at Lime Red Studio and talking about the importance of taking a walk during COVID, you know, shelter in place times. So yeah, walking is important to a lot of folks. Uh, for me, I, I walk my Shih Tzu every day. So that's, probably a way to stay grounded in my neighborhood. I do confess I'm a little irritated sometimes while I'm doing that. You know, some, Sometimes it seems like the dog and I have different objectives <laughs> doing, doing the walks. But um, I think something that's sort of parallel to that that has been more important to me is just the practice of riding my bike to work. My, I'm not very far from my workplace, about seven miles, so maybe eight miles. So it takes me about 35 or 40 minutes to get to work depending on whether I'm facing a headwind or not. And I've noticed that, you know, riding my bike, well, a couple of things. One, I'm happier when I'm riding my bike than when I'm driving. Because, you know, driving is kind of an uh, aggressive, competitive activity. Riding your bike, you're not very important. You're sort of marginal to what's going on. And, you know, there's, there's something that almost compels you to be unhurried about it. So I, f- I often feel happier on my bike. Um, then I think too there is that that beneficial slowing down. We're in the season of Advent, and uh, for Christians anyway, and I'm I'm thinking about the way that Advent asks us to slow down. And bike riding for me has been a way to slow down and look around and you know pay closer attention. So I guess that's um that's a way that a similar practice to walking has been important for me. Yeah.
0: Going to church as a practice is one of those reflective practices or going to a, some type of a worship service or, I mean, that's what really that is about. You know, I mean, as laity, we, we sit in that space and we listen to testimony and scripture and then we contemplate, you know, our communal lives. You
1: know? Yeah, so, thinking about Silence has also been important um, in sort of social settings as well, so thinking about my social location as a white guy i've learned slowly that one of the most important practices for being with other people is to to be silent and to be open and to allow others to speak and I'm thinking especially of you know learning from the experience. Of people of color, um, black and brown citizens whose whose experiences are so different from my own like how can I learn about those things without shutting my mouth it can really be a kind of I don't know, beautiful contemplative experience to be silent and to listen to another bear witness yeah I want
0: to change gears for a second because I want I I think our audience we should talk about a little bit about what we are uh, planning. I mean, this is an episode of spiritual capital, but it's probably our last one or your last one, right? You want to talk a little bit about?
1: Yeah. One of the last ones anyway, maybe we can do one more spiritual capital. We'll see how this goes. But Diamond and I met not quite through this podcast, but in connection with it and with its conversations. And, you know, in the course of these conversations, a question came to the fore, which is, how do predominantly white institutions, say, for instance, the college that I teach at, um, but it could also be a bank, or a a, a corporation, or of a, a philanthropic firm, how do predominantly white institutions partner well with community-based resident-led organizations that maybe are administrated by black and brown citizens. How can these organizations partner without colonization happening, Um, become interested in the question of white theft, interested in the the problem of um, how sort of white-led organizations can just kind of take over, maybe have the best of intentions, but essentially colonize um, the the people that they're trying to partner with. So very tangled set of questions, and I wasn't exactly sure about my own capability of getting at these questions adequately, especially given my own um, social location. So I came to Diamond and said, would you like in? Would you like to co-research? And of course I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did. So far we've done, I guess, four interviews and we've looked at talk to people in different sectors like the financial the academic philanthropy we'll be talking to banking and
0: um, religious institutions uh, community uh, institutions and I think a few more that don't can't remember right offhand.
1: we hope to do a whole mess more as a way to kind of caffeinate ourselves and strengthen ourselves for this long work, we thought we'd do some very public-facing podcasting as well, talking with people in these spaces. And so the plan here is to transition from spiritual capital um, and to move into another podcast. Starring
0: Craig and myself.
1: <laughs> we'll be talking about how predominantly white institutions can partner better with community-based associations, often led black and brown citizens really excited to get to this practical question yeah
0: and well and i think that i'm excited about um about this particular podcast we'll be talking about um, some other contemplative practices that not only that we use we'll go deeper in those but we'll be exploring what others use and i'm excited that we'll be having guests it will be sharing a little bit of practices uh contemplative practices learning about What's also good in the world? What are social innovators, social inventors, or social entrepreneurs utilizing and practicing um, in their success of doing what they do? And people in very small and large places, so you'll be surprised, but I think this is going to be fun.
1: Okay, so I think that's a take for us today. Thanks for, thanks for joining this conversation, for being my co-host. I appreciate you inviting uh, me to participate
0: design which you uh, create.
1: Thanks for joining this episode of Spiritual Capital. I'm Craig Mattson, co-hosting with Diamond Harjis. If you have spiritual practices that you have found helpful for seeing unobvious gifts and goods in your workplace, your organization, your neighborhood, don't hesitate to send us a note about those. We'd love to hear. Jot us a line at spiritcap at gmail.com.